Do you love Christmas music and lights, but also long for more substance and depth to the season? Do you hate Christmas music and lights and also long for more substance and depth to the season? Are you looking for something real in the story of Jesus' birth in a season that drips with sentimentality? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then welcome to this Advent and Christmas season at Salt House, where we're getting real by taking a real look at the real people in Jesus' family tree. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy, you know, that list of men begetting men that we all skip over, but a closer look and we see names of five women. Shocking! These are Jesus's grandmothers, and they are not just any women. Want to talk about being real? In the stories of these women, there's scheming, manipulation, outright lies, grief and abuse, deception, scandal. There's Tamar. My father-in-law Judah defied the laws, blamed me, and left me abandoned with no husband and no children. I had to create hope and a future when there was none. Rahab. I was forced to the margins of society and the edge of the city of Jericho. But that's where faith found me. Those same fringes made it possible for me to defy a king, save Israelite spies, and play a part in God's people entering the promised land. Ruth. Even though my husband was gone, why wouldn't I go with my dear mother-in-law, Naomi? Love makes us do crazy things, and following this crazy love, it led me to a new life and family. Bathsheba. What power does a woman have against a king? A king! King David used me! But God then invited me to be part of a bigger story. And lastly, Mary. I was all the wrong things. Pregnant, betrothed, but not married. Yeah, I may have found favor with God, but all I experienced was the disfavor of my people. Surprisingly, I treasured it all and pondered, could this change the world? Yes, this real Advent and Christmas, we dive into the scandals of the real grandmothers of Jesus, the women who made the way for the Messiah. With these women, we encounter complicated moral and spiritual questions that reflect the complexity of our real lives now that don't lend themselves to sweet, warm, Christmassy reflections. We'll find substance and depth as their humanity connects with ours, and we'll be astounded by the beautiful messiness that God, our divine creator, would actually become human for us in Jesus. So in the midst of all this real complexity for these women and for us, We'll await the encounter of our Emmanuel, our God, with us. Tis the season for a real Advent and Christmas with the real grandmothers of Jesus. When we talk of Advent, we're speaking the language of waiting. These four Sundays spanning our journey to Christmas, we submerge ourselves in this season of waiting. So real talk, like, do you like waiting? Like in line, in traffic to hear back from your doctor for Taylor Swift tickets? Uh, Yes, so most of the time, waiting is not something we would choose, and yet it is so much a part of our lives, right? Which is why in Advent, we practice waiting. Where we dwell in the tension between believing in the goodness that is to come and also naming the grief and heartache of our present moment. That, that is to wait with hope, yes? It's what we just named as we lit our first Advent candle a moment ago. Hope is a feeling of ex- expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. To dare to see what might be 
which requires us to acknowledge how things are not the, the way that we want them to be right now. And until they are the way that we want them to be, we wait. We wait. So my friends, Advent then asks of us, what are you waiting for? I'm waiting for my mic to stop making funny noises. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What are you waiting for is the question that Advent asks of us. And to dare to let hope be a part of then that waiting that we are in. Daring to imagine a different future as we wait. So please keep asking these questions of yourself today in this moment. Like, what are you waiting for? What are you hoping for in your life right now as it is? Not last year, not last week, but right now. What are you waiting for? So let that answer just be with you and continue to rise up in you and hold that close as we share in this time. Because this Advent, we are getting real. Did you know that in this lineage, in, this, in the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus, there are these five women named Jesus' real grandmothers listed there at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Did you know that? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty sweet. And digging into those stories a bit, whoa, so scandalous, <laughs> which is actually at times it's hard to hear, but also it's so liberating for us as we are also people who have these messy lives too. And the first grandmother on the list is our grandma for today, and this is Tamar. Are you ready to get to know Grandma Tamar? Yeah, let's do it. So I would not be surprised if you know little to nothing about Tamar, because Tamar's story, it's in Genesis 38. It's one, of, it's one that most preachers kind of skip over, like parents, if they're reading it out of the Bible, like to their children, like, ooh, we'll just turn a few pages past that one, you know which is why it's really good for us to make time to get to know Grandma Tamar, this grandmother of Jesus, the scandal that surrounds her and how her strength and courage and just the messy reality of her life, how it connects to the birth of Jesus and how it connects to our lives now. Because Tamar did some waiting. Tamar did some hoping. And I hope that we can find a good word for us as God's people who begin this Advent journey of waiting together. So you game for some scandal? Right. Yeah, you good? So like any good scandalous story, there's a good number of people involved, the most dramatic kind of people, family members. <laughs> right? Right. So perk up your ears and try to keep track of who is who in this family saga as it unfolds, okay? So I'm going to summarize parts of it. We'll put parts on the screen because we want to make it all the way through her story. Let's do it. So again, Tamar's story is in Genesis 38. And it's, so it's just the first book of the Bible, right? Just 38 chapters in, that's where we find her. And her story is sandwiched in the middle of Joseph's story, of Joseph of the many-colored coat fame, right? So right before, in Genesis 37, uh, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And then right after Tamar's story, in Genesis 39, uh, Joseph's, that's Joseph's encounter with Potiphar's wife, Okay, so Tamar's, it's interesting because Tamar's just nestled like right in the middle of Joseph's story. like, and now we'll talk about Tamar, and now we're back. So it's just an interesting little way that that flows. So the connecting point between those two stories is Judah, because Judah is one of Joseph's older brothers, right? So when our story starts, Judah has left the family, so left his father Jacob's house, and has put down his roots elsewhere, marrying a Canaanite woman, Shua 
who bears him three sons. So there's Judah and Shua, okay, married, and they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. I know, baby name, baby name possibilities are like huge in this one, right? So Judah arranges for Tamar to marry his oldest son, Ur. So Tamar is then Judah's daughter-in-law. Tracking? Family? Married in? Okay. And, uh, but Ur, the text says, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. So that's before any children were born. So Tamar is now a widow without children. Now, according to New, uh, Near Eastern law and custom, the next-born son is obligated then to marry the widow and serve as a surrogate so that she can have an heir. So that's just the law. That's the way it is. So Judah then naturally instructs his second son, Onan, to sleep with Tamar and fulfill this obligation. So uh, Onan doesn't want to complete his role in that, which God is really ticked about. So Onan also dies at the hand of the Lord. So that's right. Two of the three sons are now dead after sleeping with Tamar. Now, Judah has one more son, uh, that's third son, Shelah, but he's too young to marry. And Judah himself could serve as the surrogate as well. Uh, In fact, he's obligated to do that, or at least to provide his son, or, or release Tamar so that she can go and remarry. But Judah blames Tamar for the deaths of his sons, Versus, like, seeing how that's just a result of their own poor choices, right? So, and it, so he doesn't want his third son or himself to, to die either, so he looks for a way out of his obligation to Tamar. Instead, Judah goes against custom and sends Tamar to live as a widow back in her father's house. Judah says, okay, you can marry my third son when he comes of age. So Tamar heads back home, but unlike other widows, you know, she hasn't, he hasn't been, he hasn't released her and she can't remarry and must stay chaste or be put to death as she waits for Judah to keep his word. So you're feeling the drama building, right? You're in it, right? Two sons dead, and the widow has been sent away and not provided for, but we're just getting started. So here's where things get really spicy, like the scandal dial gets cranked way up from our Western perspective. So let's see what happens. We're starting in verse 12. After a long time... Judah's wife, Shua, died. When Judah completed the time of mourning, he and Hiram, the Adalmite, went to Timnah to supervise the sheep shearing. This is like the equivalent of like a business trip, right? So he's like traveling for the sheep shearing. So off he goes. When Tamar learned that her father-in-law was visiting the sheep shearing, she removed her widow's clothes, covered her face with a veil, and sat down the entrance to Enam, two wells, which is on the road to Timnah. She did this because even though Shelah was now grown, she had not been allowed to marry him. I know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Judah has not kept his word and sent for Tamar. So Tamar goes, she disguises herself so that Judah mistakes her for a prostitute. And as the story continues, as expected, he propositions Tamar and Judah engages her services without recognizing who she is. No wonder preachers skip over this passage, right? So... Judah then uh, promised to to send her a goat from his flock as payment, and she convinces him, asks him for his signet cord and staff as a pledge of like, okay, I'll keep this until you send the goat. But what she took from him is the equivalent of like our modern day driver's license. It's like legal identification. So Tamar holds onto it for insurance. But when Judah tries to send Tamar that payment of a goat, nobody can find this mysterious prostitute, so Judah isn't able to retrieve his signet cord and staff, which we know in a scandalous story like this that just might come back to bite Judah, right? So 
We read on Genesis 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the wanton. She's pregnant. Judah said, bring her out. Let her be burned to death. As Tamar was being brought out, she sent a message to Judah. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. She said, take note, please, who owns this seal, cord, and staff. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Judah recognized them, saying, she is more in the right than I. Since I wouldn't let my son Shelah marry her, Judah did not have intercourse with her again. And when her time came to give birth, they discovered that Tamar was having twins. So this, this is the story of great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, Tamar. Isn't it something that Tamar, that this story is included in Jesus' genealogy? This grandmother of Jesus, as you might guess, scandal is often associated with her. And when this story is told, Tamar's actions are usually characterized by uh, being adulterous, revengeful, and or as an act of prostitution. Even the Bible Project, I love them, like they, they refer to Tamar the prostitute at times. But is she any of these? Like, I don't think so. In fact, let's, I want us to look more closely at Grandma Tamar and her context and just how she informs what it means for us when we find ourselves in our own after a long time. So after a long time, that's what the verse says in describing how long Tamar was waiting as a widow back in her father's house. We don't know exactly how long that was since Judah had sent her away, but it had been years of waiting, and Judah shows no sign of ever sending for her. So Tamar is living in this stuck limbo of waiting, living in her father's household but belonging to Judah's household. She's a widow who's not free to remarry, a woman obligated to have children without a legitimate way to do so. Man, there's no end in sight. She was stuck. So for most people, this would be a hopeless situation. Like if it were me, I can only imagine that I would just like curl up in despair. Like I'd, I would give up. All I could see was how I have no power here. I have no way forward. I have no opportunity to change my circumstances. I'd stay in my widow's clothes like my entire life. Do you feel how in the middle of this story, as Tamar is in her years of waiting, do you feel how stuck Tamar is? Yeah? Even though there were laws to protect her as a widow, there's nothing she can do as a woman if her father-in-law didn't actually follow them. Friends, how do you feel stuck? It's another way of asking our question, what are you waiting for? So I hope that you're keeping that answer close to you. Just how are you in your own version of being stuck in your father's house in your clothes of mourning with no sign of liberation? And maybe it's not as kind of comprehensive as the kind of stuckness that that Tamar endured. Though it could be many of us are facing huge, hard life issues. No matter what, we are all waiting for something So there are three things that I want to lift up about Grandma Tamar and what happens in her waiting that really speaks to us. Okay, yep, for three things? Okay, three things. First, what's astounding to me is that Tamar, she doesn't despair. She doesn't give up, right? 
How do we know that she doesn't? Well, she dares to hope, and we see that hope in seeing her dare to dream and see what could be. So daring to hope, Tamar, see, she actually has a choice. She could just submit to Judah's decision, or she could come up with a way to conceive within his family still, even now. And so, because of that, a different new hope emerges. So this is the first thing. Tamar shows us how hope is a moving target. Hope, again, is that desire for a certain thing to happen, but that certain thing, like what it is that we're kind of aiming for, can change. And it does change as we live through the waiting, as what we hope for may no longer be possible. If you've ever lived through a long season of waiting, especially when it really matters, then you know that hope is a moving target. That, that's just true for so many of us right now. I think of, just in our midst, I think of Kevin and Marianne as we hope for the efficacy of their cancer treatments right now. What they hope for and what we pray for, for them, that shifts every week for anyone facing cancer. It's just a moving target, right? I think of the parents in our community with our kids, like what we hope for for our kids, that is such a moving target. Think of for all of us with our body, with its mental and physical needs and challenges, that is a moving target of hope. For our relationships, finding a partner, how we live with our partner, seeking acceptance and connection with family, friendships, all of that is just moving target. And they're moving target just for all of us as we head into the most wonderful time of the year, right? Like, but it just brings out, too, as we see how things are different than we had hoped for in any number of ways. After a long time. Like Tamar, we all hit these seasons of a long time, so... Knowing that hope is a moving target and that we are in the most wonderful time of the year, this is such a great moment for us to step back and look at ourselves and look at our lives, especially in the ways we are waiting and hoping and longing and ask, is there a reset needed for our hope, a new target to adjust course? Is there a new hope that can be born in any despair that we may be feeling Because the story of God is really clear about this, that despair is never where it ends. We will land there in despair again and again, and so often that has happened for us in recent years. But Grandma Tamar and the story of Jesus as our Emmanuel point point for us just toward just how, how hope is so born out of despair, out of what seems impossible. We don't have to stay stuck. Our our new hope, it's tricky because it may not feel like something bigger and better, right, that we're shifting into. It may not be an upgrade. It can feel like a downgrade. It can feel smaller as we adjust our hope. And I just want to say that that's okay. Even as it's hard, it is still a hope for a future. So my friends, what is your new hope? So friends, just let that land in you in, in what you wait for. Like, are you stuck? And is it time to envision a new hope? And if so, begin just to ask, like, what is that new hope? Like, what, what's that new target? And as new hope forms in us, then the next question that arises, is there a need to take action? Like, that's the th- second thing about Grandma Tamar. This woman was stuck. Then she finds a new hope in her waiting 
And then she gets to it, right? She takes action. Just look at all that she does. When Tamar learns that Judah is headed on this business trip for the sheep shearing, Tamar comes up with a plan to get him to sleep with her in the hopes of getting pregnant. Again, remember that when we read this through the lens of the time and place, how this is not as cringy as we think of it today. Judah, by providing a son for Tamar, this is like how she has a viable future. So Tamar, she puts on a veil so that Judah doesn't recognize her. She's stationed at the entrance to a town that she knows he's going to walk through. With the knowledge that she has, she sets the scene perfectly. And with this one act of intercourse, Tamar gains her ultimate goal. She becomes pregnant with twins. She likely even thought through the timing of her own fertility cycle. Man, she just brilliantly gets Judah to hand over his ID to her. I mean, man, it's just a masterful plan, right? Everything about Tamar's actions are deliberate and wise. And in carrying out this plan, Tamar, she ends her own time of waiting. She ends her waiting. She gets herself unstuck. My friends, as new hope forms, what comes next, hope may ask us to get to it, to act. We often say it here that love is a verb, right? Love is put into action. And today, Grandma Tamar shows us too how waiting is also a verb. Waiting is a verb with a new, different hope. It's it's an active thing that we do that hope will likely invite us into action to get unstuck. Advent reminds us of this every year. This Advent season of waiting does not mean a season of like passivity or powerlessness or despair. Every year we flip back to the prophet Isaiah and we hear the prophets cry to us as the prophet says, screen content, there it is, prepare the way of the Lord. (laughs) Every year Isaiah reminds us to clear out and make room in ourselves and our lives to see and hear God's arrival in it and in us. Waiting is not for, like, it's not, like, finding a good seat, grabbing some popcorn, and sitting back and see what happens. Like, the story of God's people, Tamar included, is that when we're stuck in a time of waiting, we get ready for what's next. I think this is what hope stirs in us, that when we have a new hope, it pulls us into our participation in making it happen for us to get unstuck. Yet... I don't mean for this to be like a pep talk about like, let's get out there and take action, get yourself unstuck, at least not yet, because there's a piece missing. You see, no matter what it is that we're waiting for, like what we hope for, like that thing, that that certain thing, our waiting always becomes waiting for God to arrive to, to be with us. Advent, speaking this language of waiting every year, what, what we're doing now waiting for our God to come to us in flesh and blood and be here in our real lives, our God with us, this is what we are always waiting for. No matter what that certain thing is that we're hoping for, just based on the current moment that we're hoping for, we are always also waiting for God to meet us in the wait. Isaiah also has something to say about this. He says later in that same chapter, it's Isaiah 40. He says, those who wait for Yahweh, those who wait for Yahweh, Those who wait for Yahweh find a renewed power, a renewed strength, is what other texts say. They soar on eagles' wings. They run and don't get weary. They walk and never tire. You see, the promise is that those who wait on the Lord never wait alone. 
never wait or act with only their limited, limited energy or ideas or resources. Tamar is listed in Matthew's gospel in Jesus' family tree because she shows us not just how remarkable she is, and she is, but this is also a story about how remarkable God is. This is a story of God's faithfulness, how God is with those who are stuck, those who the law have left behind, those who have lost and who grieve, those who are downhearted, those who have too many reasons to despair. Look what can happen even after a long time, is what the story says. Look what God can do. And Matthew is saying, not only does God find a way out, a way forward, a new life, but this is what the family of God is like and who is included in this family. The story of Grandma Tamar reveals how no matter how weary and done we feel, God does not grow weary or done. God is the source of that hope. Even when we don't know what to hope for, God does not grow weary and will be the hope that we need. And that's the third and final thing from Grandma Tamar, showing us how God is our strength and hope. This is what happens in the waiting. So if you're feeling the exhaustion, if you're feeling the despair after a long time of waiting, of enduring, or failing, or falling, or just feeling plain stuck in something, then this word is for you, that we wait on our God who will renew our strength mustering up hope, getting to it and taking action, all of that is fueled by our God. And like Tamar, we may find that getting unstuck might have even bigger repercussions. Another thing that's so astounding about Tamar's story, you see, Tamar made you know, her own hope like within her own life, right? But she also made hope possible for the lineage of Jesus to even continue Jesus was supposed to come from the line of Judah. And after Ur and Onan died, without Tamar, that line would have ended. No line for Jesus. Tamar's unusual course of action just ensured that the continuation of that line from Judah, from which Jesus would come. And Jewish scholar Tikva Simone Freimer Kensky, she writes this about it and about Tamar. She says, Tamar's boldness, initiative, and willingness to defy society's expectations have enabled God to provide Judah with two new sons, her twins, after the death of his first of his two sons. By continuing to consider herself a member of Judah's family and insisting on security, on securing her own future within its parameters, she has made it possible for that family to thrive and develop into a major tribe and eventually the Judean state. There's this change that happens in Judah. You hear it when he gives credit to Tamar in a culture that gives no credit to women when Judah says, she is more in the right than I. Isn't that incredible? So Freimer Kensky goes on and says, Tamar passes from the scene, but her impact continues. The woman who transformed the history of the kingdom of Judah also transformed Judah himself. The rest of Genesis shows him back in Jacob's family. He had betrayed Joseph out of jealousy, but he henceforth acts out of loyalty to his brother Benjamin and his father and is willing to stand up to the Egyptians in order to ensure their safety. Do you see how there's this pivot point that happens also that, that Tamar is in Genesis 38 for the unfolding story of God. In daring to hope for herself, Tamar ensured that the house of Judah aligned once more with the movement of God through history. And, get this too, Tamar's twins, the two boys, 
become you know, the new genealogical line, and they are even also named in Jesus' family tree. So Matthew's gospel that we're referring to this whole Advent, Matthew's gospel begins with this first part of the genealogy, where it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, there they are, whose mother was Tamar. Isn't that something too? Which is why when people call what Grandma Tamar did adulterous, revengeful, like and or an act of prostitution, I'm like, eh, like no, there's like so much more to the story. You guys, just listen to Judah. She is more in the right than I am. So my friends, did you get to know Grandma Tamar a little bit today? Yeah, this real, very real grandmother of Jesus. And in the scandal that surrounds her, do you see how her strength and courage and the messy reality of her life connects with the birth of Jesus and with our lives now? Because Tamar did some waiting, and Tamar did some hoping. And I hope that you heard a good word for us as God's people who begin this Advent journey of waiting together. So my friends, how are you stuck what are you waiting for? What are you hoping for? May our very real Grandma Tamar be with you this week in your real life as you wait, as you find new hope, as you get to it, all sourced by the strength of our God who will find you in the waiting. Amen? Amen. Amen.